ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And this is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Today we're heading to the Northern Territory's largest banana farm, which has plans to become even bigger. Well, our goal for, for this farm is to produce 100% local bananas for the, for the year. Uh, we're working our way onto that. We've uh, increased plantings from late last year right through to try and, uh, try and be self-sufficient. Also today, as floodwaters recede, we step inside the Timber Creek Museum to assess the damage. All the memorabilia has been destroyed. Um, if it's not destroyed now, it will over the next couple of weeks with mould and different things. But, um, yeah, it's very disappointing, yeah. And the former boss of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, has handed down his report into price gouging. You'll hear from him before 1.30 today. A very, very busy country hour. And we start with news that the High Court has dismissed an application by mining giant Glencore which was seeking to expand its Bing Bong port operation in the Gulf of Carpentaria. The expansion was challenged by native title holders in that region, and they've won. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. This is a significant ruling by the High Court. What can you tell us? Yeah, so this goes back 10 years, Matt, when a subsidiary of Glencore, which runs the MacArthur River Mine, had applied to expand its area under lease at the Bing Bong port out there in the Gulf Country. That's where the ore from the MacArthur River mine is trucked to, put on barges and then transferred out to larger ships in the Gulf for export. Now, the water there is very shallow, so a channel has to be dredged for these barges to get in and out. Mm -hmm. And sediment from the dredging has for years been pumped onshore just behind the port. But that area, it has limited capacity and it was filling up. So Glencore applied for a larger area to put that dredging sediment. Um, And native title holders from the area, they challenged that application for more land, taking it to court in 2016. It's now made its way to the highest court in the land where today the court ruled in favour of those native title holders, finding that the granting of the lease would impinge upon native title holder rights. Mm -hmm. And the High Court ordered the NT government from being restrained from granting this lease extension. Now, I asked what this means for Glencore and its operations there at MacArthur River and Bing Bong. I got a statement from General Manager of the MacArthur River Mine, Mark Furlot. He said that MacArthur River Mine continues to be engaged in discussions with traditional owners and with the Northern Land Council in relation to the land on which is the subject of the decision of the High Court and other matters. And we have approached the Northern Land Council and the Minister for Mining, Mark Monaghan, for a response, but we're yet to hear back from them. Okay, and in some other resources news, Woodside and Santos... There will be no marriage, no merger, Dan. No. So for the last few months, gas giants Woodside and Santos, they've been in talks about a potential $80 billion merger between the two gas giants. And today the company's announced talks are off and no merger will take place. 
A statement from Santos to the ASX said, following an initial change, exchange of information, sufficient combination benefits were not identified to support a merger that would be in the best interests of Santos shareholders. <laughs> yeah. They've gone and had a date and decided it's not for them. Yeah. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in Woodside are up, Daniel, by 1.3%. Shares in Santos are down by 5.2%. That's the latest in resources news. We'll bring you the big banana news for the Northern Territory next. G'day, my name is Heather Smythe. I'm a sensory scientist and flavour specialist and my job is to make food more delicious. And you're listening to The Country Hour. So the Northern Territory's largest banana farm, it's located out at Lambles Lagoon in Darwin's rural area. And last year, it supplied about 80% of the bananas being sold in the major supermarkets of Darwin, Catherine and Nullanboy. This year, if all goes to plan, the farm will produce about 100% of the top end's banana needs. To learn more about the farm, to learn more about its expansion, I went out there and caught up with the manager, Mark Smith. How you going, Matt? I'm Mark from Darwin Fruit Farms. We're at the pack and shed at the moment. You can see the bunches coming in on the gantry. They've just been picked from out in the paddock, been through a washer. They'll spin around and they'll take the hands off them, put them in a bath. We'll cluster them and, and grade them and pack them in, in for market, yeah. What makes a great banana? Well, something that's grown... Up here is always great, but uh, you, well, you, great banana is, is something that's um, clean, sweet, got a good shelf life. And size? Uh, size, our bunches vary a little bit, depends on what side of the plantation we're coming from. The plant fruit's a little bit smaller, but this return fruit's um, quite big. We do prune our bunches back to make them pretty even so they travel well on the trailer and the top, top hands fill out a little bit more and get a bit more length in those fingers. Now, this farm is already the Territory's biggest banana farm, but you are working to produce even more bananas. Can you tell us about that? Oh, look, our goal for, for this farm is to produce 100% local bananas for the, for the year. Uh, we're working our way onto that. We've uh, increased plantings from late last year right through to try and, uh, try and be self-sufficient. For the top end? Only for the top end, yeah. Our bananas go from Catherine to Gove and all the, all the major chain stores up here. And hence why in recent times when we've had a few days of supermarket shelves looking very bare because roads have been cut or the rails being cut, um, people might have noticed that they could go into a supermarket and at the very least there were bananas, your bananas. Yeah, look, they're a very popular item, but yeah, we're only 40, 50 k's down the track, so... Our bananas are probably the freshest in Australia when you get them off the supermarket shelves. They've got um, basically picked, packed and put in the cool room, then they're ripe and delivered to store. So they don't have to travel all over the country. So when are you expecting to, to reach that target of meeting 100% of the top end's banana needs? Look, that's a difficult question because obviously um, weather conditions and, and uh, we are dealing with Panama, so it varies a little bit, but we'll be striving this year to try and do 100% local. Whether we do or not, it'll be very close. And as you mentioned, you're doing all of this while also battling Panama disease, a disease that's been on this farm for a long time now. Can you remind our audience on, on how you do it? Well, 
Panama we've had for, I think it was about 98 or something, it came on this farm. It's a fungus, a soil-borne fungus, and once you get it, you don't get rid of it. So it's endemic in the top end now. So in that, it kills bananas. And what we do is we rotate the paddocks very quickly. We only get sort of two returns of the plant crop and a first return out of these bunches. Then we move on. The idea of that is so that um, we don't build the inoculum too much into that paddock that when we go back in there, it's actually shrunk down enough that we don't get smacked straight away. So we try and leave those um, bays fallow for as long as we can. So you're sort of pushing down banana plants and growing new ones very quickly here? Yeah, all the time. We, uh, The last few months we've been planting every fortnight, weather permitting. Um, so it's about 2,500 plants a fortnight just to try and keep it up, yeah. So it's a, it's a different way of growing bananas and we're always turning fruit and barb blocks back in and planting new ones. It's what we do. It's part of our regime now. While also picking bananas. Oh yes, that happens 52 weeks a year. We pick every week. You're like a dairy farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, without the cows. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, it is, it's, it's something that once you plant a banana, it's not a seasonal thing, it's a cycle thing. So yeah, you put it in the ground, you're going to get a bunch eventually. And can you explain to us how that compares to a banana farm in eastern Australia that doesn't have to worry about that disease? Well, traditionally, you probably, you know, you can leave bananas in the ground indefinitely if you wanted to. They just get all over the place. So to keep most, most of we used to go six to eight years in the ground before we had to replant. The only reason we did replant was the fact that um, things got a bit untidy or got a bit of damage and fall out and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's gone from six years to 18 months pretty well. And at one stage, in terms of thinking of the challenges that this farm's face, at one stage you lost all of the bananas during the banana freckle period. Yeah, that's correct. We, I think it was um, 2015 or something like that. We, we've never had freckle on the farm, but we had a lot more fruit then, and we knocked a lot in the ground and took a while to get established. We had to go two years, uh, two wet seasons without any fruit in the ground to break that cycle. And, um, yeah, unfortunately they, it raised its head again a few years, a couple of years ago, and... Uh, we still freckle free, so it's good. Yeah, it's something you're in the back of your mind all the time. And so, how's that going to make you feel when you reach that target of 100% of the top end's banana supply? Oh, look, that's that's great. It's 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 harder than it sounds, but um, we're working pretty close to to doing that now. And I think it'd be great. It'd be that's that's what our goal we're sort of trying to achieve. And you've been on this farm for over. Two decades now. Yeah. What do you love about bananas? Oh, I don't know much else. Probably that's about it. But yeah, I've done uh, bananas all my life, all my working life. So it sort of gets into your blood. And yeah, I like the lifestyle, hard work, and a bit frustrating sometimes. And you can see how the banana industry's evolved in the last even ten years. It's it's crazy, you know. So, but yeah, it's it's inter- always interesting and a good place to work. And looking to the future i mean here we are with beautiful cavendish bananas do you think australians will still be eating cavendish in i don't know 30 years time oh that's a good question um i I suppose it depends a little bit on disease and and what happens like there's no resistance to the panama tropical race four in the cavendish variety so it's pretty well established all around the world now so that's going to make a big impact on the Cavendish banana obviously you can still grow them you just have to modify how you grow and hopefully by that same time there'll be a commercially viable resistant variety that can take the place of Cavendish Thanks for your time on the country Howard No worries Matt. Yeah big thanks to Mark Smith from Darwin Fruit Farms 
which is owned by Premier Fresh Australia and that farm, home to the Territory's largest banana plantation. So the farm's on track to have 60 hectares of bananas, which I'm told would be capable of producing around 2,500 tonnes of bananas every single year. And Mark tells me that any excess bananas will be sold interstate, into supermarkets in South Australia and Victoria. My name's Jason Clark from Humpty Doo Barramundi. I'm the fish production manager, Eddie. And you're listening to the country here. And up next, we are heading to Timber Creek to see how locals are going in the cleanup after all of that flooding. And we will step inside the Timber Creek Museum to assess the damage for ourselves. But first, let's have a song. And we thought today we'd play some Toby Keith. If you haven't heard the news, Toby Keith country music star. He has died aged 62 after a three-year battle with stomach cancer. Uh, this was one of his well-known tracks. It's called Should Have Been a Cowboy. Should have been a cowboy Rest in peace Toby Keith, right across the territory on the ABC, you're tuned into the Country Hour. We've been talking bananas. We've got a chance to visit the Territory's largest banana farm. Kim and Woodruff says, Matt, regarding Territory bananas, the banana bandits raided my small backyard in 2014 and axed my three plants and I'm still recovering, says Kim in Woodruff. Ah, the banana freckle years. They weren't great, were they? And as you heard from Mark Smith, that farm out there, even though it's never had freckle, they too lost all of their bananas, the entire commercial plantation. How to relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holidays. Throwing in a line. Great time. Are the fish biting? Hard. <laughs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal. Hard. And generally getting teed off. Don't scream too. Hard. How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back to work to relax. The new season of Hard Quiz. Starts tonight on ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iView. <laughs> uh, let's make our way to Timber Creek now where the town is still recovering after being cut off by floodwaters for more than two weeks. NLC Ranger Coordinator Beattie Retchford says after parts of Timber Creek were flooded during last year's wet season, the community was a bit more prepared this time around. Well, this time around we were... Um, holistically around community we were a little bit more um, organised and um, with some and took some preempted measures as a community as a whole through our our local emergency um, committee. But yeah, so you know, once once you got got the creek starting to rise and probably not going to go down and stuff like that, we got, actually got people out. Um, you know, the electricity was cut off in communities for safety reasons so it doesn't blow out the rest of the town and all that kind of stuff. So, the, you know, they, it was a little bit better than than the year before, but it was also a flood that was quite different to the year before, different circumstances, different type of flood. So, fortunately, the community really didn't get flooded in and people didn't have all their houses saturated with water and losing... Um, you know, fridges, washing machines and things that it took them ages to replace the last time round. 
But, um, yeah, so um, got people in and, you know, I think the hardest thing was um, getting them to evacuation points given all their different circumstances and stuff like that. So, you know, because the clinic had to take care of vulnerable clients and and that was good because we actually got them out this time. And um, so they were out away to a more safe safer environment you know for their health reasons and then they only had to deal with what's going on around the place and for for the first time ever um you guys and other rangers put out traps on the highway (laughs) uh where where did this idea come from oh well it's just a couple of croc sightings you know um the water was very close to where we're all we're all all evacuated to and living and um so and very close to the police station (laughs) Now, we can't have the crocs taken out of our police, especially in the middle of the crisis. <laughs> but um, anyways, so, um, yeah, it was just crocs sighting. It, it was mainly based around being safe, you know, put the trap in. Um, so parks, the park rangers were putting the trap in. We sort of assisted. We lent them a, a trailer to get the trap onto because it was pretty big and heavy and, you know, and some of our rangers went down and offered a bit of manpower and... But it was good, good um, because the rain, our rangers hadn't had the experience of having set, you know, crop trap set or anything like that. So it was a good exercise because they went over, um, and thank, and all thanks to Parks, you know, um, they went through the safety processes with them, you know, checking equipment, making sure the traps were safe. It did have a hole in it apparently that had to be repaired. <laughs> so. So, you know, just all that prep stuff took our guys through, checking equipment and things like that, and then going out and then, um, you know, where the police were engaged then as spotters and for safety reasons because they're out on a boat and setting a trap in and just making sure a big boy's not up the side, they're watching them, <laughs> waiting for someone to fall in or something. Mm. And, and, and so uh, your office is currently has been hit by the floods how, how bad is it looking right now well the, not the office our office itself but our compound um, took a little bit of flooding sort of in the bottom area there's a we have a um, the back area of our grounds a little bit lower than the top area so it came pretty close but it didn't make it didn't get into the shed um, and I, I kept saying to the rangers thank goodness we take changed the way the whole whole shed laid out you know because if it did get in we we weren't at too much of a risk inside there um, with equipment stuff but we had to move our ATVs um, um, our vehicles you know some of our trailers smaller trailers we left on the higher ground at the top of the ground there and brought the bigger trailers out put the boat out in front of the police station we're just still sitting there because the ground's too wet to put it back in again we don't want to sink them down, and that, and that little bit of shower today worries me because we haven't got the grounds nice and hard and dry yet and another thing, so the boat might be sitting in front of the police station for a bit longer. <laughs> that is Betty Retchford, who is a Caring for Country NLC Ranger Coordinator in Timber Creek, speaking to Jan Kahoot, who has been in Timber Creek listening to people's stories seeing firsthand how the cleanup is going. And he did get a chance to visit the Timber Creek Police Museum. Now, this building, the museum, it housed archives and 
artefacts from the region dating back to 1908. But sadly, and I'm sure you've seen the photos, the flood went right through the museum. The water level got right up to the roof. Caretaker Baza Burrows, he showed Jan Kahoot around the museum and showed him the damage. All the memorabilia has been destroyed. Um, if it's not destroyed now, it will over the next couple of weeks with mould and different things. But, um, yeah, it's very disappointing, yeah. There's a, a, vi a, a video there I hope to get out of that machine that had the police reports here. They tell me it could be good. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty disappointed and I probably won't do any more museums. I'm just about had enough. I'm too old now. How much effort have you put into, into this museum? Uh, well, I was asked to come here be six months before COVID uh, to make it into a museum. And uh, that took me about six months. I got it all looking good. And then uh, COVID hit and that stopped any people coming. So we sat here for about 18 months. And then uh, people started to drift through. The buses started to come back. The buses were terrific. The local people, some of the ones here who helped, have been terrific. This time they evacuated the uh, town because we would have shifted stuff up into town but I was talking to the boss there and we said, well, if we're going to get evacuated, where are we going to put the stuff? Um, after hindsight, we could have got rid of the stuff up in the big house up the back but we didn't. And um, we thought we'd have six inches to a foot of water, two foot maybe. Uh, Stewie and a couple of others come down, help me lift everything up about four foot off the ground. And uh, it just started to rise and rise. And in the morning, they showed me a photograph of the roof. You've seen the water level out the back. It's all disappointing. Why do you think it's important to, to keep this museum and other museums intact? <coughs> this one was very important. I'll show you around here. Yeah. These books here, now this is the strange part about it. Uh, are the police history from 1908. Now I could hardly lift that box and I put it up on top of there where the canoe is. Right, I got it up there and that was what was wrong. That's a save. That's a save. They're all the police reports from 1908. Terrific history in there. So when you asked that question before, the history of this place is unreal. Uh, it was a frontier. More gunfights and more cattle moved up here than America. But uh, it was a rough place and the Aboriginals got the worst of it. They did, they were real bad. Didn't, didn't help the Aboriginals one bit. Uh, there you go, there's the floods up there. That's the bridge she'll bridge after. And I was just talking to the army fellows before and uh, it was up over the safety fence there. It was three metres over, over that level. So it was pretty high. Big, big floods here that came through yes. just then. And now that came down from uh, Victoria River End, probably VRD. I worked out there in the 80s. And they tell me it was 24 metres out there. Now, Victoria River Roadhouse got wiped out. I come through there last night. Um, it's just imagine, you just can't imagine the water. Mm. Yeah. Talking, talking back on what's, what's important about this museum, uh, you've saved a, saved a couple of records. Yeah, um, well, all this is the history here. Yes. These were all the um, Vesti collection. Um, they're all uh, photographed, maps, 
where they were taken, the whole lot. So we'll save those, but they'll never be like they were before. So people will look through them, but um, there's, that's the his, history. And then another lot behind you, there's the history. Um, Are we currently standing in, uh, in the history of Timber Creek, one of the last records of what, what actually happened here? That's dead right, yeah. Yeah, we're right, yeah. So if the, this place goes away and most of it gets flushed away, we, we lose a part of who we are. Well, we'll save all these records, the photographs. There'll be him. Somebody else might come along and sort of set it up. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm 82 now. I'm a bit old to be mucking around now. Well, what's the next step for the museum? Who's, who's going to take care of it? Uh, well, I'll be here until I straighten it all out or clean it up. I don't know. Do we call it honest? No, I don't know. That is Baza Burroughs, caretaker of the Timber Creek Police Museum, showing Yarn Cahoot around the building and the damage because of that flooding. I've got a question here from someone at Livingston that says, is any of the content of the Timber Creek Museum online? It sounds fascinating. I'm not too sure. We might make some calls about that. I know it's sort of sister museum in Kununurra, has put a lot of its work online. As for Timber Creek, I'm not too sure. We'll make some phone calls and try and find out. G'day, my name's John Lyon and I work with compost in the Northern Territory to help farmers improve their soils. Compost and mulches are absolutely essential to good farming in hot climates like ours. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. The former boss of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, has handed down his report into price gouging. He has released his findings into the banks, the supermarkets, the aviation sector, and he has just addressed the National Press Club. I'll bring you some of Professor Fells' speech to you before 1.30. Uh, some interesting findings and some interesting views from him. I hope you can stick around for that. Someone on the text says, so out Bush is getting the cricket and in Darwin they're getting the country hour. What's going on? These are all good questions, audience members, all good questions. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. Beck, I'm just looking at the Catherine radar and quite a line of moisture stretching from the VRD up to the central Arnhem Highway. Is there much rain in it? Uh, there's a bit of rain in it. Um, so these storms are actually uh, leftovers from last night that were over northern parts of the Barclay district that have tracked northwards uh, during this morning. Uh, we've seen some moderate falls over the Gregory district uh, so far today, around that 15 to 30 millimetre range. Um, VRD's picked up about 26 millimetres. Um, dry River with 33 millimetres, so a little bit of rainfall but nothing too scary at this stage Um, but we are expecting uh, more showers and storms across the top end today there's a uh, a trough that's been moving northwards overnight it's now just a little bit south of Catherine um, so close to where those those storms are Um, that's going to be moving into the top end over the next few days 
Uh, so we are expecting an increase in showers and storms. So starting this afternoon, um, probably will be more more storm activity across the top end. Um, starting to see some showers forming up in the Darwin rural area as well that will probably develop into storms uh, this afternoon. Um, but getting some clearance over southern parts of the Territory um, with a, a ridge that's mm. pushing in across the south. And I see in terms of rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning, some interesting ones there like Bullo River jagging 29 millimetres and Tortilla Flats 31. But look at Javois Cattle Station on the Plenty Highway, 15 millimetres in the gauge. Yeah, so they did not too bad. The, um, yesterday, uh, storms were pretty widespread. It was really just the Lasseter district that missed out, um, with showers and storms pretty much elsewhere. Um, but yeah, we are expecting a bit more clearance from the south today. Um, still a little bit of cloud down there. Um, currently seeing some storms in the in the southeastern Tanami district, uh, probably not far from Yundamu. At the moment, um, but yeah, over coming days, we'll start to see a bit more clearance through that area. Okay. I was on a farm in Darwin's rural area this morning, and the fellow said, Matt, when's the next monsoon will burst? Shrugged my shoulders, said, no idea, but I'll ask the Bureau for you. Um, what can you tell him? <laughs> yeah, it's actually um, an interesting question. Um because situation this week that we're just keeping a little bit of an eye on with that trough moving northwards, uh, there is a chance that we'll have a low uh, forming within that trough um, over the next few days. Um, so where that forms is still uh, a bit uncertain, whether it's Gulf of Carpentaria or overland over the top end. Um, but yeah, just depending on what that low does over the coming week, if it moves further west over the western top end, that could bring monsoonal flow over the top end, um, but not certain or, you know, not certain on any one location at this stage. So okay. that's a bit of a watch point. More for next will week. be revealed in the coming days. That's right, yes. Okay, there is a fire weather warning in place, an extreme fire danger period for Barclay North. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so with those um, that ridge building across the south, we've got a, quite a surge of, of southeasterly winds that have made their way through those central districts, so into the Barclay, um, combined with those hot conditions that we're seeing um, still through those parts. Um, so that's increased the uh, fire danger, although also need to be mindful there has been a fair bit of rainfall through that area so um, yeah might not be reflective entirely but there is that warning so just be aware that there are those windy conditions um, that's probably not so good if there are any fires around. Yes anything else we need to be aware of? I think that pretty much covers it um, just yeah with those storms uh, over the top end the next few days just um, keep an eye out for any potential severe thunderstorm warnings for for heavy rainfall with those yep okay then thanks for your time Beck. appreciate it no worries thanks matt hi i'm Dione walsh from range iq and i'm in alice springs teaching a grazing course and you're listening to the country hour Yeah, go and jump onto the Catherine radar and check out that line of moisture. And it's delivering some locations, as Beck said, have already jagged 30 millimetres from 9 o'clock this morning.
and it's heading to the northwest. <laughs> I've got a message from Jerry. It says, I'm here peeling apples. I'm watching the cricket, but I'm listening to the country hour. That's retirement benefits for you, <laughs> says Jerry. And uh, someone else says, flipping cricket, God. 0487-991057 is our text number here at the Country Hour. You'll get to hear from Professor Alan Fells in a moment. He has handed down his report into price gouging. He's been looking at the banks, looking at the supermarkets. What are his findings? He'll be on the radio very soon. Now, the head of the Australian Meat Industry Council, he says he doesn't think any abattoir in Australia is ready right now to start processing sheep that have been stuck on a live export vessel off the WA coast. If you've been missing the news, the Federal Department of Ag rejected an application to re-export the livestock that are on board the MV Bahaja around Africa to Israel. And of course, many are asking, well, what will happen to the livestock on board? Quite a few thousand on board, what becomes of them? A lot of people calling for them to be brought off and sent to an abattoir. But Patrick Hutchison from Amic says it's not that simple. He says if the animals are to be killed in Australia, it would take some time to organise. We uh, don't really know what the process is going to be at the moment. We haven't been given any, any sort of guidance at all. Obviously, this is a departmental decision to withdraw the, um, the, the export permit. However, it's still a commercial decision from the exporter as to what they do. So we're not compelled to process. They're not compelled to sell to us. Uh, potentially, they could uh, background these animals again and then uh, put them back uh, after a long spell to be re-exported if they're still in spec. We, we don't have any idea. So at this stage, all we know is these animals will you know, be re- unloaded. Then the commercial uh, reality of the whole process will take its course. There, there's an extra layer to this, though, isn't there, around the debate of live export, but also the processing capacity of uh, Western Australia to process animals like this. Large processors in WA say they're at capacity until about April. So I suppose that leaves smaller processors or even other states to kill these animals if they're not backgrounded. D- does that highlight constraints in the processing industry? There, there always are some constraints at any uh, uh, particular time like around Australia. I think as well we probably should uh, recognise that I don't think any uh, processor in the country would be able to all of a sudden start processing 15,000 sheep as opposed to all of those other producers who have been uh, working on their uh, working on their livestock, diligently waiting, everything being set up and then next minute, sorry, uh, we now have to process these. For some people, 15,000 sheep could well be, you know, four days kill out of six. So, look, there, there are many and varied ways if uh, processors were compelled to process these, including weekends, uh, to 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 manage those, um, splitting them up, etc. So all of those would be there. But as I said previously, the scenario is is that this is a department's decision not to grant them an export license. So they'll be unloaded. That that exporter will make a commercial decision around that. And big picture is something you do in your role, right? So big picture, does this do events like this highlight the need for further investment or support for processing capacity in WA? I think in WA we've um, uh, had this discussion uh, obviously quite a lot over the last six months. We have provided the necessary information about 
what does an expanded uh, meat processing um, uh, industry in WA look like? But again, you know, we've got to be absolutely clearly vital about how we manage this. And the reason that we do that is, is that in too many times over the last 100 years in this country, we have expanded capacity in processing only to have either climatic conditions or many other things un- be undertaken in order to ensure that uh, uh, we then have an undersupply or we have an oversupply of workers. This is about looking at how can we effectively invest into the future around innovation and many other op- uh, opportunities to allow us to then uh, uh, you know, expand uh, the WA meat processing uh, capacity, but in a way that is manageable and that doesn't put strain on those processing companies that all of a sudden they could have you know, machines, they can have structures and systems idle uh, for periods of time. These government department decisions are happening at a time the government is investigating its plan to phase out live export of sheep from Australia as a policy. As meat processors in Australia, you're not taking part in live export, but do you have a position on whether live export of sheep could, should continue? No, we don't have a position, Warwick. It's nothing to do with us. Um, uh, live sheep uh, in Western Australia and live cattle uh, are a competitor to us and uh, they take a certain type of livestock uh, at a certain time, uh, in a lot of circumstances with sheep, very much out of specification for the domestic market uh, and certainly more, uh, uh, you know, in, in uh, that export market, uh, it, very much the same. So it's very much horses for courses. Um, um, yeah, we don't have any position in regards to uh, live export. They're a competitor and that's that's that. So with that in mind, given you work with that industry, but you also stand to benefit if it's phased out, how do you think their government's handling this issue with this boat? Look, I think that the, there's a lot of moving parts in regards to this boat. There's a lot of scenarios that we've put forward, uh, that have been put forward to us and others. I think that in this time, what happened has happened has been that it's very opaque in regards to decision-making. And as such, uh, once the Secretary of the Department has come in, uh, you know, there's certainly been a, a pretty quick um, resolution to that. So I think where the frustrations have lied for a lot of people is they've not really understood the decision-making process goes, but also um, we've got to remember that the uh, current regulatory, requir- regulatory environment means that the exporter is making most of the decisions. So the the uh, the department can only make a decision based on if uh, if based on what an exporter wants to make a decision on. Do you want to go to a certain spot? Do you want to unload? Do you want to load some, etc. So that's what we've heard. But again, from a processing perspective, you know we've just been an observer uh, around this process in order to ensure that we're ready if you know we're compelled to do something. I think probably more importantly to one of your points around we stand to benefit. I think we've got to keep remembering currently these sheep as they are uh, when they are exported are out of spec for most of our markets. Now, if uh, live sheep were to to cease, in fact, it's actually about the producer's decision to want to continue to produce sheep. That is Patrick Hutchison, the Chief Executive of the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking to Warwick Long. Stay up to date on the saga, which is the MV Bahaja via the ABC Rural website. The former boss of the ACCC says banks, supermarkets, aviation and energy companies are exploiting their market power in ways that drive up inflation and hurt Australian households. 
Professor Alan Fells has today released his report commissioned by the ACTU, which looked into price gouging. He says action is urgently needed and he believes there are many things government can do to improve the situation. So he's just spoken to the National Press Club in Canberra. I will share some of Mr Fells's speech with you right now, starting with his introduction by the NPC's Laura Tingle. There's no greater domestic pressure on Australian households or our politicians right now than the cost of living. Yesterday we heard from the new Governor of the Reserve Bank, Michelle Bullock, about the outlook for inflation and interest rates. But interest rates are only part of the story. Even people without mortgages have been confronted with huge increases in prices of groceries and everyday goods as well as services. The structure of our retail sector and the way it prices goods that we buy at the counter are now under intense scrutiny. That includes scrutiny from our speaker today, Professor Alan Fells, who has just completed a major report on price gouging, which he is launching today here at the club. Please welcome him to the podium. Thanks, Laura. Uh, good afternoon. And I report to you on my ACTU commissioned inquiry. The greatest concern of Australians today is the cost of living, which has two components incomes and the prices which people pay. My conclusion is that Australians are paying prices that are too high too often and that the cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First, the Australian government needs to act on high prices to investigate their nature and causes and, where possible, their remedies. The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power, which enables the excessive prices to be charged. There are three reasons why I am pleased to have done this inquiry. First, there's been much discussion of inflation and its causes, monetary and fiscal policy, etc. But silence about the actual prices charged to consumers, what they are, how they are set, the profit margins and their contribution to inflation. Second, there's much discussion about the harms of monopoly, market power, reduced competition, of which the main harm is high prices. But there's little discussion of what actually to do directly about the high prices. The fact is that a monopoly or dominant firm can charge as much as it likes in Australia, and duopolists providing they don't illegally communicate, can also charge high prices, higher even than would be the case maybe if they were an illegal cartel. And governments themselves frequently sanction very high prices by restricting competition. For example, refusing additional Qatar flights into Australia 
let Qantas charge prices about 30% higher than otherwise. There is a policy gap about high prices, even though they are a major concern of Australians today. So I've made some recommendations about addressing that gap. Third reason I'm pleased to inquire is it's an ACTU commissioned inquiry, so the focus is the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. And I've heard stories of real hardship and sacrifice to make ends meet. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground, like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well-known concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role. Having played a role in getting prices up, we want it to play a role in getting them down, like rockets, not feathers. My, my second set of findings is about a number of business pricing practices. There are many. I just looked at a small number. And I conclude that many of them, and the ones I've looked at, are designed to extract more than their fair share of the consumer dollar in those markets that are not competitive. So there you go. That is Professor Alan Fells addressing the National Press Club this afternoon. You'll be able to find that full address via ABC iView. It's often put on YouTube as well. And you could read more about his recommendations up online right now if you search for ABC News. Feathers and rocks, hey? Feathers and rocks. Let's find out how the prices were faring at Dublin this week with Elsie Adamo. Numbers increased marginally as agents offered 285 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was generally fair to good and with the additional process of buyer now looking like a permanent competitor, competition was good from the now usual buying group, specialty butchers and restockers. Prices remain generally firm across the offering for type and condition. Vila steers sold from 290 to 330 cents, as Vila heifers range from 256 cents to 302 cents. Yearling steers made from 186 to 228 cents, as heifers sold from 218 to 312 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 270 to 318 cents, as grown steers sold from 270 to 328 cents, with grown heifers selling from 220 cents to 318 cents. Light cows sold from 176 cents, with heavy cow selling from 220 to 288 cents, bull sold from 204 to 310 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Elsie. And the live export trade, still nothing to report. It's the 7th of February 
and still not a single beast has been exported out of the Darwin port. And the Indonesian presidential election is on this time next week. And still, the cattle industry is waiting for Indonesia to issue those import permits for 2024. So while this is all happening, the trade's in limbo. No ships have gone to Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines, but the main market, Indonesia, those import permits have not been issued. And the presidential election's on next week. It's a bit of a tough time for the trade. We might talk more about this on maybe tomorrow or Friday's Country Hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. I hope you learnt a thing or two about bananas today. (laughs) Keep it rural.